looking back, we probably saw that being young and, you know, slightly inexperienced versus our competitors was a disadvantage, but it can be a complete advantage, you know, to be young and to have energy on your side and to have new ideas and to be disruptive. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Oliver Lowe, a serial entrepreneur with almost 20 years of experience in the tech and startup worlds. Oliver started his career at Microsoft in 2006. He spent time at MySpace from 2008 to 2010, and then launched a digital agency called Platform 360, a B2B agency which was purchased by a strategic acquirer, Silver Bullet, in 2018. After the acquisition, Oliver joined Silver Bullet and helped take the company public in 2019, where his team is still benefiting from the acquisition structure Oliver and his M&A team helped design. Today, Oliver runs Tiny Studio, a venture studio that sits within tiny.com. Tiny is a holding company which was started to invest in and acquire companies. So Oliver now sits at the center of helping make Tiny's portfolio companies grow. In this episode, Oliver shares his views on the types of buyers business owners should consider from strategic buyers, private equity firms, and holding companies, the value of great M&A expertise to help maximize financial outcomes, and how exiting earlier than the conventional wisdom suggests creates better liquidity and professional options for business owners. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Oliver Lowe. Oliver, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I am very excited to have this conversation. I think you bring a unique perspective that our audience is going to be really interested in. And I say that because you've had this long entrepreneurial career. You've built companies that have then launched companies. You've had your exit. You helped that company go public. You joined Tiny. Com, right, as helping all of these new entrepreneurs see another way to liquidity, and you're helping build all those companies. I think you have just a very unique perspective on M&A in general, when it should happen, how it can happen. Just really excited to get you on our show. And just so you know, Mark Cuban had this spot before you, and when I got you booked, I bumped him. Right. So thank you for being here. <laughs> thanks, Todd. That makes me feel good. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, I'm excited to share some of my learnings. As you say, it's been kind of a long journey and I'm really keen to, to kind of, you know, dive into my experiences and, and very hopeful that they can help others who are going through similar things. You know, when I went through the early stages of, you know, launching a startup and then going through to my first exit, there wasn't really so much content out there for startups. Like, you know, podcasting wasn't really a thing back then. And um, there wasn't really such a community as well. So there were very few opportunities for us to learn from others' stories and, you know, ideally learn from others' mistakes. And so hopefully I can spread a bit of knowledge and wisdom and, and help others to do that. That's so interesting. It is the same for me, right? I've been doing uh, startups for 25 years and the resources are certainly not what they are today. I think we've had one guest who seemed to learn every step of the entrepreneurial journey, including the exit through podcasting. It was really kind of inspirational. <laughs> Let, let's jump in. I know that you had a career working in at companies before doing a startup and the value of that. Uh, maybe you can explain kind of the beginnings of your career. 
Yes, absolutely. So when I graduated university, I had taken advice from my father and various other people that I respected. And whilst I'd you know, always had the intention of jumping into launching a business at some point, their advice was to get as much experience as you can, you know, put the reps in, learn on someone else's dime and, you know, grow your network and and all of these good things. So when I left university, I had the intention of doing that. And this was, you know, early 2000s. It was post the dot-com kind of crash. Most startups had been obliterated. You know, there weren't a ton of options for a grad looking to to work in startups around about then. Um, I wanted to work in tech because I was obsessed with the internet, you know, as everyone was back then. And in tech, there were really two companies at that time. There was Google and Microsoft. I was very fortunate to be offered jobs at both of them. I chose Microsoft based on their reputation for training. People said to me that it was the absolute best place for grads, you know, that you could learn the ropes. The training was incredible. And I can totally see why. I loved working at Microsoft. I spent a couple of years there working on product. I worked on the early Xbox product. This was just after Microsoft had acquired Xbox. I worked on MSN back when, you know, portals like Yahoo and MSN were were a big thing. I worked on Hotmail and ad tech products like Atlas. And I really enjoyed being part of a, a respected organization. They really look after you at the big tech companies. And look, I can absolutely understand why so many people choose and stick to this path. The life yeah. is, is very, very good. Um, you have these people in Microsoft who've been there for like 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And I can totally see why. Um, on the other hand, I recognized that that path wasn't for me. I recognized very quickly that to succeed in places like Microsoft or Google or whatever it might be, you know, you've got to play the games. It was highly political and doing well ultimately meant aligning with certain people. It meant going to certain events and getting close with certain people. And uh, with a slightly rebellious nature, this didn't quite feel right to me. Microsoft probably wasn't going to be the place for me in the long term. And I wasn't quite ready to launch my own business yet. I wanted to take a step more towards the startup world. And by that point, you know, the startup world was beginning to pick up momentum. There were a number of players in the space, but the biggest player in the game was MySpace. They had just been acquired by News Corp and what I think was the biggest tech M&A deal done at the time. It was probably tiny in comparison to today's numbers. I think it was like $200 million or something of that nature, but it was massive at the time. And MySpace felt like a safer startup path versus a lot of the kind of boom bust, you know, that that many had back then. I was also offered a job at Facebook in that same moment, and I turned it down. This might be one of the few regrets that I have on my journey so far. I think I would have been in the first 200 people to join Facebook. So super early joiner in the company. And I imagine that the stock options that I would have been granted at that point would have gone on to probably allow me to never have to work again. Um, (laughs) So I could certainly say that was a bit of a regret, but you know, such as life, we all have some of these. The less that's said about the value of the MySpace options is probably better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Let's just say you've gotten to lead your authentic life, right? Maybe Facebook, you'd be on some island doing something that is not your authentic life, right? We've had all these exciting experiences since then. Yes. So yeah, I spent a couple of years at MySpace and I loved it. It was chaotic. It was far less structured than Microsoft. To be honest, it was kind of chaotic. 
Um, and I love that, you know, being in my early 20s, it was a fantastic place. People were drinking and doing all sorts of things in offices that they probably shouldn't have been doing. The, the company <laughs> culture was very much aligned with the music industry being my space. And it had some of that kind of pizzazz and, and magic and madness. And perhaps that's why ultimately things didn't work out well for my space. MySpace basically died in the 2007-2008 crash. Every employee in the company was offered voluntary redundancy. I was the first to volunteer. I remember vividly standing up and saying, yes, please. I knew that you know this was perfect timing for me. I wanted to launch a business and the severance package was extremely generous. It was like a year of you know salary with no wow. tax. So this was like the perfect launch pad to launch a business of my own. Redundancy, I think, can be a dream come true for people who are trying to get on the entrepreneurial path. Definitely a bit of a blessing in disguise. And so I took the cash. I took a bit of time out. I think it took a couple of months off and, and went traveling and you know thought about what I wanted to do. But I really set my heart on launching a business. Around about the same time, a lot of people were in the same boat in that, you know, it, all industries were kind of collapsing. Everyone was being made redundant. And so a bunch of people that I'd worked with previously were in the same boat. We started to throw some ideas around. After a couple of months, we committed to launching a business. That was our first company. It was called BNC. Um, we launched BNC in 2008. Um, it was a digital agency. And it was an agency that made websites and apps and games and a whole bunch of other digital content. We launched an agency because we knew that we could do that with minimal cash. Mm -hmm. Back then, the VC world was really small. The startup scene was just you know, unrecognizable to what it is today, mm -hmm. especially in Europe and especially during a credit crunch. Mm -hmm. There was basically no cash being involved where we were, especially not for a bunch of you know, 20-somethings with you know, only a few years of experience. So yeah, that felt like a really good option for us. If I'm honest, we didn't spend a huge amount of time ideating around the concept. We simply jumped in head first, you know, in a yeah. way that only people in their 20s can do. But we had a really compelling narrative. We were young and disruptive, and we used this to our advantage. Can I interrupt you just for a second, right? There's a ton to unpack, but maybe we talk about that essentially gift, right? You're creating some liquidity by leaving MySpace. You get a year's salary. It's fantastic to be able to think about going to start a company. And I always encourage people like either start with a customer in hand and you're building towards that customer or, you know, you've saved up cash to buy yourself time, right? Because yes. these things take time before they start generating revenue. And what's nice is when you go towards something that is agency-like, you're really selling your time and your expertise and you have a rate card, right? You're going to start charging your first customer yeah. right away. So yeah, it's a great business to be getting into to have kind of the cash flow and take some of the sting out of early entrepreneurship companies yes. that may not make it someday. So I just wanted to throw that in there. So your first company really BNC, right? Tell me how that goes. Like when did you decide or know that that was going to be successful? I think that we we knew pretty quickly that it was going to be successful in that I think within the first you know three months, we'd signed up a bunch of customers. They ranged from the World Economic Forum to Coca-Cola. And 
we could tell that we had something quite special between the three of us. We were a kind of perfect co-founding team, although it kind of came about, you know, fairly randomly. I handled the sort of sales and new business. And I had one partner who was more operationally oriented. So he kind of built the team internally. And we had a, another co-founder who was our CTO. So we had a, a really good setup. We had a really good narrative, I think, you know, we kind of could see where the puck was going in a way which probably the older incumbents in the space couldn't. It was a time of massive change, you know, like the iPhone had just come out, it's 2007, 2008. And so off the back of that, there was just this like massive explosion in building that occurred Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. mobile finally, you know, became the thing which we'd all hoped it would become. And so we, we leveraged that, we turned, you know, our idea via just energy and relentlessness into a scaled business. I think we probably did about $1 million in our first year, signing up a a bunch of amazing customers. We were just relentless. You know, we Mm -hmm. simply outworked and out-hustled everyone that we came up against. Uh, We often would beat massive agencies, you know, big incumbents that had huge teams that would work on pitches for, you know, weeks We did not have those resources, but we did have kind of good ideas and we had a lot of energy. And I think that, you know, looking back, we probably saw that being young and, you know, slightly inexperienced versus our competitors was a disadvantage, but it can be a complete advantage, you know, to be young and to have energy on your side and to have new ideas and to be disruptive. I think that these can be awesome things on your side. I would argue also that your dad's advice plays really well here, right? Because as a young, energetic guy, now you have like real understanding of tech at one of the biggest companies in the world being Microsoft. And you're able to tout like, hey, I worked on Xbox. I worked on MSN. I worked on all of these different platforms that gave you exposure that nobody else had. And then you jump into the startup world where ideas are, are flowing at MySpace. I bet your partners very similarly had backgrounds that just kind of blew everyone away. Um, like, yeah. hey, these are the guys to take us to the future, right? Yeah. Totally yep. So your, da- your dad's advice, right? Go get that experience really Absolutely. probably paid off in spades. Totally. Just knowing how, you know, things work, you know, you, d- you don't know that innately. You know, you have to figure out systems and processes and how businesses function. All of that stuff was super valuable, as was the network, you know, like, People that we hired came from a lot of my early network building in in both Microsoft and MySpace. A lot of our customers were people that I had met, you know, through those early jobs. So, I I mean, I'm amazed that people can do it without putting these early reps and getting this early experience in elsewhere. What a great point, right? The network that you're building um, is amazing, right? Just for customer contacts, but also the employees that you're going to hire. Yeah, that, I think that is fantastic to share, right? And yes. a great reason to get some reps in before you go and actually launch a company. Absolutely, absolutely. What I found interesting about BNC is that now, as you're building a real company, you're also seeing opportunities to create offshoots, right, from that original company. Can yeah. you talk about how you saw that as an entrepreneur, how you saw opportunities to spin out you know, new efforts, new businesses? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we had always envisaged that BNC as an agency would have a lab because, you know, and this is a great model. We were actually doing this today within Tiny with agencies that we own. 
you have a big team of people, you know, designers, product designers, engineers, developers, and, you know, a lot of the time they're deployed on projects, but when they're not, you can use their time really well to like spin up side projects. And so we called this a lab. Really, it was a, a kind of proto venture studio or startup studio. We used our team's spare time when they weren't, you know, working on projects to build products that we would then launch into the market using our media buying team. The media buying team was really a kind of early growth marketing resource before people, you know, referred to it as growth marketing. So we, we did that constantly. We were always launching little mini projects and experiments into the market. We had some early success doing that with a video ad network or Vice, which was really cool. And then we spent a lot of time focusing in on programmatic ad tech. This was really, you know, one of the boom areas in tech at the time. It was around about the time that, you know, DoubleClick was bought by Google and Google really became the, the behemoth that it is today. Um, and so we became obsessed with advertising technology because we needed it internally and using third parties was kind of painful and it decreased our margin. So we thought, you know, why don't we just build all of this stuff ourselves, which in hindsight was kind of insane, you know, like we were taking all of the profits from our agency and funneling it straight into the lab. And, you know, that was both very smart and very stupid. It was very smart in that we had exposure to launching a bunch of other businesses. So we're kind of increasing our likelihood of success. But it was insane in that we were building really complex machine learning oriented technology without any funding. As a team, we never fully agreed on whether to raise or whether not to raise VC. By that point, you know, the VC world was, was a lot more advanced. And, you know, given that we had, you know, significant revenue by that point, it was very much possible that we could have gone out and raised. But for better or worse, we didn't. Um, we bootstrapped. And so all of our money went back into building the team so that the team could build our products. And, you know, this was hard. With transparency, yeah. you know, this was extremely hard. We probably didn't pay ourselves enough. When the team needed to be grown, we, you know, we paid for that rather than paying ourselves. And, you know, in hindsight, I don't know if I recommend that others do this. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly risky. And, you know, I think the experience probably aged me by about 20 years. I would say that, yeah, it is a, a young man's game, right? Yes. In that to be able to continue to just double down on building your visions, it's a tough thing to do, particularly when you build a lifestyle that has, you know, certain requirements, right? Or family. So, yes. yeah, I do think for, you know, younger people that is, it is a little bit easier, particularly when you're excited and changing the world and you've got a great team that that is supporting you. That's interesting. Like the idea that could have raised and you decided, you know what, let's bootstrap. Can you talk just a little bit about that? decision because i think a lot of our listeners get in that position of like should i exit or should i raise you're not talking about exiting but you're certainly making this decision to not raise capital yeah well it's a really pertinent point this became a significant point for us because we built the agency business for several years it was going really well we probably were generating you know 3 or 4 million dollars a year for that business we eventually launched the advertising technology business as a standalone, a kind of spin coat. We spun yeah. it out as a separate entity. And around about then, our board advised us that we needed to focus. We couldn't keep running an agency and, you know, at the same time, run an ad tech business. I, I, yeah, again, I can totally see why. It was, it was insane what we were trying to do. So we actually shut down the agency. 
which in hindsight, again, was kind of insane because that was our cash cow. The ad tech product hadn't been proven yet. And we just kind of presumed that the ad tech business would take off without <laughs> raising. Again, you know, not raising or raising came back to disagreements in the team. I wanted to raise, but my co-founders didn't. And so, you know, we, we had to reach an agreement on that. Even though I was the CEO of the business, we were all equal shareholders in the, in the company. And so we, we decided not to raise. We doubled down on, on the ad tech business and put all of our focus into that. And luckily it did work out in that, you know, that product really took off. Our customers were, you know, the big media buying agencies of the world, the WPPs and the publicists and, you know, uh, behemoths like that. Um, it took off. We built that for, you know, probably two or three years more before realizing that we were in perhaps the most competitive market in the history of business. We were competing with Google. We were competing with Amazon and Facebook and a bunch of tier two players that had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. It was brutal, you know. Oliver, just for listeners, this this company is Platform 360, right? It, had you named it that at that point? Yes, it, okay, it was good. called Platform 360. That's yep. right. Yeah. Yep. It was a fantastic product business and our customers loved it, but we were just competing with businesses that had really deep pockets, you know, in comparison to ours, like to an almost ludicrous extent when you're competing with the likes of Google and, and Facebook, but you're this little upstart startup, you know, that hasn't even taken funding. You're kind of bootstrapping it all the way. It was precarious and it was hard. And again, I don't necessarily recommend that people do this. I think it was really bad for our mental and physical health. It was, it was a tough time having not raised, I think, you know, I probably still have the scars, you know, from that time. But I also think that I respect and admire people who have been through, you know, these tough times. I yeah. do think that you learn more from the hard times. And I think that when you speak to an entrepreneur who has been through it, you know, someone who's been in the trenches, you can tell they're often, you know, both sharper and smarter as a result of it, but also more modest and probably more humble. It is a very humbling thing to go through when you're in that boat. So I think they're good people to work for or with, um, certainly in my experience. So going back to the point about raising or selling, yep. we were gearing up to sell our business. We knew that to achieve the next level of success meant raising significant capital. There was no way that we could continue to bootstrap it and take it to the next level. And to do that would have been you know, committing another 10 years of time to this business. And we were burned out. We were exhausted. And personally, I'd kind of begun to hate the advertising industry. It's an industry that is, at least on the media side, defined by not having you know, the best product or service, but being able to do deals, you know, often kind of sketchy deals, you know, even for these massive corporations, it's all, you know, kickbacks and incentives and, you know, stuff like that. So I, I began to get very frustrated with the ad tech industry and we had no desire to continue building that business for another mm -hmm. 10 years. So we decided to sell and we were lining up, you know, ourselves for the sale process when suddenly the EU implemented the GDPR regulations. Mm -hmm. We knew that this was coming and we had prepared ourselves for it. We were completely compliant with all the regulations and we didn't think that this would cause any issues for us. We actually thought that 
because we were so obviously compliant and so many of our competitors so obviously weren't, that we might actually see an increase in revenue because of these regulations. But that did not turn out to happen. Can I interrupt you just for a sec to explain the GDPR regulation around third party and first party cookies? Yes. So um, GDPR, much like the uh, the regulations in California, uh, were were designed to protect people's data. So as you say, first and third party data. You know, as a result of GDPR, we have all of these annoying pop-ups. Every time you visit a website and you have to give you consent for data collection, that's because of GDPR. Yeah. Um, so it had huge repercussions in our industry because, you know, the the penalties for not adhering to the regulations were severe. And the brands who were the ultimate customer of everyone in the advertising ecosystem, they were really paranoid about being caught out and, you know, finding themselves in a position where, you know, they were working with partners that weren't fully compliant. And so as a result of that, the advertising business basically ground to a halt for a number of months. People just stopped buying media whilst they figured out who was and and wasn't compliant. And yeah, this went on for months. Everything just kind of stopped. And for us, that meant our revenues basically fell off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, right before we were about to sell. Even though you were compliant, which sounds like it would be a big advantage, right? In an yes. M&A process. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we, we did not see this coming. You know, okay. like I'm much more aware of regulations and the impact that they can have on businesses these days, because, wow, we were very much victims of that. It was brutal, you know, like going into a sale and your revenue fall off a cliff. We considered raising a, a bridge round. But, you know, given our situation, the terms that we were being offered were terrible. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, were kind of halfway through the sale process to then have to like pivot to raising with terrible terms, you know, just seemed like an even less appealing option. So we just plowed on with the sale, knowing that our valuation would be decimated. Oliver, so we, I guess what we jumped over this idea that you, you guys decide, hey, the timing is right for us. We don't want to do this for the next 10 years. You clearly have some competitive advantages, but tons of competition coming towards you. So you say, okay, we're going to sell this business. Uh, From that realization and decision, how do you go about selling your business? Did you hire a group to essentially take you to market or the business is already knocking on the door? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we had you know, had a number of inquiries over the years and, you know, typically they wouldn't come to anything. We tried not to get too distracted by that. We got serious about it when it was our decision, you know, when we made the decision that we wanted to, to sell our business and our board were great in that they connected us with all of the, the kind of major M&A firms from our sector. And we met probably five to different M&A firms. They were all impressive. You know, yeah. they were great people. They clearly knew what they were doing. But we decided to go a different route in the end. We decided to go with a consultancy. And this is a very non-standard option. We found a consultancy that was very specific to the ad tech sector. They were a team from the industry who were extremely experienced, who had come from usually product backgrounds. So they understood the nuance from one product to another. They were also people that were like deeply networked into the ecosystem. And our thesis was that these guys would be better placed to understand the specifics of our business in a way that the more generalist firms could not. And we also thought that they would have a better you know, uh, network for our business than the 
the generalist M&A firms would have. If you don't mind um, me commenting on that, like first, fantastic, right? That you assembled all of these choices, went through the interview process, which is really tough, right? Even ask, what do you even ask an M&A firm about? Um, you can get the high level, but how do you really differentiate between them? I think that's that's super challenging and kudos for, for actually trying to do that. And you come back and you say, wow, we've got five really impressive firms. And wh what I want to share is that these M&A firms, investment banks are really, really good at selling, right? And a lot of our founders end up thinking, well, that's the guy I want. I want that sales guy out there in the market telling everybody about how great our company is. When the reality is you found exactly what was right for your company, that consultancy that really understands the intricacies of your products within a market. And then they have the relationships to go tug on those relationships and say, I got something really special and I know why it's going to be very special for you specifically. When yeah. you can find that, that is absolutely the best representation that you can get, whether it's a consulting firm or an investment bank. And that's yeah. what we do every single day. And we see the ramifications of that real, true industry expertise. So I really appreciate you talking about this. I didn't know you went in this direction, but it makes so much sense. So yeah. please, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please, please keep going. No, not at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we took that path. I would say that on balance, our thesis was correct in that they absolutely did understand our product better. You know, like it was like getting into the minutiae of details of like, why our product was ever so slightly different from the others in the market and yep. why that meant that it was a great fit for X, Y, and Z versus not a great fit for others. And in the interview process, that really shone through. <clears throat> and I think that that really paid dividends. They were able to introduce us to exactly the right people, you know, and they knew everyone in the space. Yep. So that was, you know, that was kind of perfect. Um, they would tee it up and then we would, you know, go in and, and sell ourselves which you know, we were pretty capable of by that point. I would say the only downside to that path, you know, the, the, the one that we decided to take, was that this consultancy, you know, this agency, they weren't perfectly set up to do deal-making in the way that traditional M&A firms might. So this meant that we had to do a lot of the heavy lifting on that side between us and our lawyers and our accountants and our board. Yep. But yeah, overall, I do think it's worth considering these kind of non-standard options if you're thinking about selling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm really excited to hear that this is how you went about selling the business. And I can completely understand when it's not an investment bank, the materials that get created and the financial package and yes. the data room, all of the kind of infrastructure around M&A is not going to be exactly what buyers are looking for. And it's going to put a lot of heavy lifting on, on yeah. your hands. Yeah. Um, we always equate like when you go to sell a business, it's like running another company, right? You have now two full time jobs. Yes. We believe with investment bankers and when you're bringing in the right M&A attorneys and the right tax accountants and the quality of earnings, when you've got that full team, it is a little bit less effort on you and you have the benefit of what you got, those relationships and the true understanding of the value of your company in the market. I mean, you, you cannot underestimate when you find that expertise, how you have chosen so well. So, Absolutely. okay. Okay. So you got a lot more work on your hands, right? But you're getting the yes. perfect introductions and people yeah. are buying you anyway, right? They, they yep. see all the numbers, they know the vision, they, but they want to really buy the people. So, yes. okay, so you're in these conversations. Were there multiple eventual bidders 
for the business? Yeah. So, you know, as I kind of mentioned, we we had this terrible scenario in that our revenues basically stalled, you know, yep. at exactly the wrong moment. Like it's the, the nightmare scenario for a seller that revenues kind of dry up right before you're, you're about to, to go into that sale process. So I don't think that that decreased the number of interested acquirers, but it certainly changed the dynamics of the deal, you know, which was yep. extremely painful for us. We knew that there wasn't really much we could do about that. You know, yep. like we had a very experienced board, you know, people who had bought and sold, you know, many similar businesses over the years. We knew what the deal was. You know, we would have to accept terms which were suboptimal versus what we would have accepted, you know, three or four months before that. But we just had to plow on. There were many interested parties. Um, we probably had, I don't know, seven to 10 that were serious and that we had to engage with. As you say, it is mind-blowing how much time this actually takes. It was extremely hard to balance that, you know, whilst, you know, rebooting in a way our business because, you know, revenues had stalled. We were trying to find alternate customers that, you know, maybe we're still spending. And so we were trying to do all of this at the same time. And it was, it was really, really hard. I would say one of our founders that we, we just sold her business, she will say to us, well, no, Todd, it wasn't that it was so hard. It's so time consuming, right? Yeah. We're, you, we're all smart people getting companies to this point, right? You're yeah. not doing that really out of luck. And yes. so you are capable of doing this. It is just so time consuming and therefore distracting. And the yes. worst thing you want to have happen in an M&A transaction is your business to falter, right? And unfortunately, that is what happened for you guys that the whole yeah. kind of world came to, you know, uh, this, this interesting point where the business wasn't able to continue to grow. And you understood your board understood that you're going to face the consequences of that during, yeah. you know, during negotiation. Absolutely. So I, I think it's fascinating that you had a board that had M&A experience, right? So probably grounded you well. I think one of the challenges for us is teaching entrepreneurs these rules, right? And mm -hmm. it, it's helpful when there are multiple voices at the table advising yes. founders and being consistent around that advice. And that's one of the things we hope to do with this podcast is bring people that have been through this, just like yourselves sharing these experiences. So really, really appreciate this. All right. So mm -hmm. there's competition, seven to 10 are interested. You're weeding that down, you know, by mm -hmm. some method. How do you get to making this decision of who to sell to and, and the structure that you go with? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that probably more than anything, we optimized for the personalities of the people that were doing the deal. And I, I can now see that that was kind of a mistake, to be honest. We were obviously, you know, looking at each potential acquirer in terms of, you know, their strategic fit and, you know, cultural fit and everything else. Perhaps because we were in this like really tight predicament, we were like, as I said before, we were burned out. We were already burned out before we went through this process and now going through this process and now, you know, revenues fall off a cliff and, 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 and we were just like dead, you know, like uh, we were, we were in a desperate kind of situation. And so we very much optimized towards the personalities on the buyer side that felt kind of comforting to us. Mm -hmm. And I can see why we did that, but I can also see now why that was a mistake because, you know, ultimately the people that I'm referring to, they left not long after, you know, mm -hmm. they, they left the buyer 
eventually. And when they did, our main stakeholders were gone. So all of the benefits that, you know, were real, you know, those people did help us in the early phases. They were, you know, the people who drove the deal forward and helped to make sure that we were embedded within the buyer. You know, the early phases were all as a result of them being there. But eventually they left. And the people who, you know, took over managing us within the buying company weren't really involved with the deal and saw that the acquisition was, you know, more of an annoyance than, than an yeah. opportunity. Yeah. So I think that's what we optimize for. And I think that was probably a mistake in hindsight. Well, yeah, I don't know if I've seen that uh, come to fruition in, in the acquisitions that we've had. We've certainly gone and helped business owners understand the makeup of the buyer, right? Particularly yeah. in private equity, what is the playbook? What should you expect when you get to the other side? I think maybe, Oliver, that would have been one of the benefits of having an investment bank representing yeah. you because they would have likely have sold to companies like that before. And it's yeah. really interesting to have the demand f to buy your company be driven from the product side, the people that are building, as opposed to the corporate development groups. It's really interesting to have that. But if yes. those people are then going to leave, you know, where's the home for this business? Who's going to drive it forward? You know, those questions are, are tough ones to answer. Easy for me to say all that in hindsight, right? How could you have really <laughs> predicted that? But we lean yes. a lot on the investment bankers knowledge and experience yes. of selling to very specific buyers to know what your, your life is going to be like post closing. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, so the company you sold to is Silver Bullet. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What what I would love to hear, right, is you have this acquisition, right? Everybody agrees, took a lot of effort on both sides, and you're there for a little while. What was it like, life like there? And then how they, this company decides to go public, right? And now you're part of that as well? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think the first year was pretty exciting, you know, in that we the the stakeholders that I mentioned were still there. We felt like we'd closed the page on the last chapter. We got a deal done. It wasn't the deal that we should have done in that, you know, revenues uh, stalling impacted, you know, a lot of the deal terms, but we had a deal done and we were really excited about the earn out. You know, we, we mm -hmm. were looking forward to being able to like smash through our targets and we were really optimistic about that. So that first phase was, was good. I think it was just a relief to have, you know, got the deal over the line and um, we felt very much at home in the buying company. As the first year turned into the second year and, and the stakeholders that I mentioned left, mm -hmm. uh, things started to change. And that's when it started to become clear to me, certainly, that probably the earnout wasn't going to be as successful as it could have been as a result of us not gaining assurances in terms of investment into our product. Yeah. Um, we had a phenomenal product. We'd spent millions of dollars on it up to that point, but it was a work in progress. It was one quarter of the way you know, to its full potential. We had super high conviction in that potential, as did the stakeholders that did the deal with us. But the people who eventually you know, were looking after us within the business, they didn't see it that way. The business changed, you know, their strategic direction changed as they were you know, lining up to go public. And so as a result of that, a lot of decisions that were made with regards to our product were undone. And that was painful, you know, really like, painful. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we put blood, sweat and tears into building that product. Um, it was also challenging in terms of our ability to hit our earnout numbers because they were based on, you know, the product 
continuously evolving. You know, like we were in a, a highly dynamic space where our competitors' products were constantly changing. And I think the buyer kind of thought, well, you have a product, you can just continue to sell that. And we mm-hmm. were like, that's not how it works. We have to launch new features and, you know, even new products and, you know, very much keep this going. Can I interrupt you again? Because I think, you know, this is really, it's really valuable when we talk about earnouts, right? That is yeah. part, that is a structure, a part of a structure of uh, an MNA transaction where you're going to get money in the future if you're achieving certain goals. Yeah. And, and we've all heard the horror stories of, oh, like I'm going to have a big earnout, and then the levers to make that earnout possible when you're on the other side, when you're with the acquirer, those levers are taken away from you. And so yeah. it's one thing to have these relationships that you clearly had and you were trusting, but when those relationships are gone, what do you have to lean on to keep those levers in your hand? And a good, not only M&A attorney, but your investment banker can negotiate those for you where a certain level of investment has to go into the business or into the product, or you have to have a sales force committed to selling your products at certain margins in yeah. order for you to hit these numbers. And so I would, I would just say again, the, having that representation that really understands how to structure these deals makes your earnout less risky. It's always going to be risky. Right. But having it properly structured and then documented that if they decide not to do what they've agreed to do, these these earnouts become either automatic or there's some other trigger that gets you paid. So yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Right. That that yeah. those are those are painful. And frankly, what we've seen is those are more common than we'd ever like them to be. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, people should go in kind of eyes wide open, knowing Absolutely. there are solutions, but it's always going to be risky yes. uh, taking earnouts. Indeed. Yeah. So, all right. So they, they're they're going to go public. They have shifted the the pieces around the chess yeah. board in order to go public. And yeah. are you are you helpful in doing that? Is that what, what did you learn through that process? Yeah. Absolutely. I was, I, I mean, I learned a lot about the, the process of going public. Uh, it's it's a tricky, complicated, very time-consuming thing to go through. It was a very valuable experience to, to see that firsthand. I still felt like, you know, I was part of, you know, this, the, the buying company. Although I think by that point, I'd recognized that I wasn't going to stick around. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my co-founders is still there, you know, so he made a, a very different decision. Another left before I did. And... Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that many people who had a super, you know, fun earnout. It's it's often kind of this way. The culture that we built up was totally different to the culture of the of the buyer. We felt like we were pretty much aligned, you know, culturally. But then the reality was it was pretty different. It was very different. That was challenging to us as well because a lot of our core team kind of left. You know, they they didn't really enjoy being part of this hyper different culture, and so they kind of moved on. And at that point, I was super focused on just hitting the milestones that I could that I could hit, and you know, making sure that I delivered on promises that I'd made to the to the new team that were in place within the buyer. Learning as much as I could do, you know, being in that different space, being in a business that was gearing up to go public, I was just like a sponge trying to absorb as much as I could, and also like you know, enjoying not having to work stupidly long hours. Mm-hmm. I'd become a, an employee by that point, you know, and I felt like an employee versus a founder. And uh, to be honest, it was probably needed because, you know, the, the previous 10 years were so intense. Mm-hmm. So again, I had a, you know, 
my old board, uh, several of which, you know, have, have been mentors of mine in the long term, were like, you know, enjoy this opportunity to, to not work as hard as you have been. Like give your brain a bit of time to recover and uh, learn as much as you can. Take meetings and, and start thinking about what you want to do next. Uh, I'd very much already set my sights on on the next chapter. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd kind of already started to close you know, the, the page of, of that, that, that chapter with the, with the acquirer. Good for you. I, I really appreciate the story and being, just being so open and honest about, you know, the, the, the highs and the lows. Is yes. there, is there kind of one piece of advice that you would give that's around M&A that might, maybe it's, what is the biggest mistake that you make made that you wouldn't make next time or, you know, anything that you would give to, to our fellow founders and business, business owners? Yeah, I think a lot. I mean, you know, going back to the point that we've already kind of stressed, M&A takes up a huge amount of time. You know, yep. for six months, it took up most of our time. And because we were still, you know, super day-to-day oriented in our business, this just meant, you know, it was very challenging for us. And we kind of took our eye off the ball of, of the, what was going on with the business. So just, you know, be prepared for that. I think, you know, going back to, to what we already discussed, we should have had an investment banker on our team, you know, like the firm who did the M&A did the introductions, but, you know, everything else was kind of down to us. And and that tripped us up. A lot of the things which I've described that went wrong were as a result of, of that being the case. So I would definitely do that differently next time. I don't think that we also appreciated that time is the enemy of all deals. Mm-hmm. You know, like the longer the M&A process drags on, the higher the likelihood the deal won't happen or that the terms that you get will be worse. And we certainly accepted terms that we shouldn't have accepted because we weren't prepared to back out, you know, like mm-hmm. the buyers kind of dragged the sale process on knowing that this would be more likely from us with time, that we would mm-hmm. accept things that we probably, you know, wouldn't have liked to have, have accepted given our precarious position with revenues drying up. I would add that the revenues massively picked up again just yeah. after we did the deal, you know, <laughs> as we predicted, they yeah. bounced back you know, even more than we predicted. So, you know, that was at least uh, some good news. Again, like, you know, as I mentioned, we didn't secure guarantees that the right level of investment would be made into our product. And this stifled our ability to, to hit some of our earnout milestones, which was, you know, somewhat painful. And I would definitely do that differently. What else? I would say that the, the biggest advice I would give to anyone, you know, who's you know, looking to create an exit opportunity for themselves, for their company is more than anything, be profitable. You know, um, if you have a profitable business over the long term, you will have buyers bending over backwards to do deals with you. Um, if you aren't, it will be a lot harder and you'll be constantly in a somewhat precarious position where you're liable to either VCs or some other kind of funding, funding source. Profit is just the best buffer that you can have. On a personal level, I would say, you know, to any founders that are going through the M&A process, like be healthy. You know, if you don't have a personal trainer, get one. If you don't have a coach or a therapist, get one. It can be such a grueling process and you'll do much better if you remain healthy and in good spirits. And I guess finally, you know, always be willing to walk away. To do this means being able to walk away. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to have a safety net for your business like a buffer that allows you to do what you want. And this again goes back to being profitable. Um, It was kind of out of fashion for businesses to be profitable for a while, but it's very much back in vogue these days. And thank goodness for that. 
because nothing protects you like profit, you know, as a founder, having a healthy bank balance and regular recurring revenue is just an incredible godsend that will, you know, allow you the freedom and flexibility to say no, to walk away from deals and, you know, to do the, the deal on terms that, that fit for you. Oliver, I mean, it's such good advice. I almost feel like getting to know you, it's pretty consistent with your personality. You've been very calculated in the decisions that you made. You work intensely, intensely hard. I, I would like to comment, right? Obviously, like we know M&A, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time, right? It is like running yeah. two businesses, your business and selling a company are enormous yeah. efforts. You know, very much we appreciate the having an eye banker on your team, but really the right one. And I would almost you know, argue that the consulting group that you chose was really perfect, except for the few things that we've talked yes. about, but found you the right buyers. And totally. when you talk about timing, right? And yeah. I, I, what, what we see in M&A transactions is if, if your investment banker can bring multiple parties to the table and create that sense of competition, it's not just about maximizing your outcome or your structure. It's about keeping on a time schedule. So you really force buyers to know they're not the only one there and they have to behave the way you want them to behave yes. and stay on timeline and not drag it out because that tactic is almost ubiquitous. Every buyer yeah. wants to take, I want to see one more month. I want to see one yeah. More month, and they know the emotional toll that it is taking on you to get this done, and you will end up agreeing to things that you wouldn't have three or four months ago just because it is wearing you down. So, having a banker run that process is, is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Totally agree. I, I want to touch just on profitability because you know, take two years ago. October of 2001, where it was just growth rate, growth rate, growth rate. We don't care about profitability. And when we saw that, right, it was fun to see these valuations through the roof based largely on, on growth rates and the promise of the future and that yeah. profitability will come. But we, we went and built a valuation calculator that really lets business owners understand the value of profitability, of growth rate, of your EBITDA margins, all yeah. of these things that really go in to evaluating a business from a buyer's perspective. And what we're trying to do is bring real-time evidence and transactions to that. So when you have, uh, you're in a time period where growth rate, it's all about growth rate, you know that. And now we're back to profitability. You're absolutely right. Profitability yes. buys you time. It creates options. And today it really is the cornerstone of, of creating great M&A transactions. So really right. appreciate you doing that. And, and lastly, you can walk away, right? If, you're, if yeah. you're profitable and you can keep going, you can hire other people to reduce yeah. the stress. I, you know, I absolutely love all of that. I think that's some of the best advice that we've heard, right? You really kind of knocked down a whole bunch of great, great points. What I'd love to, to finish with what you're doing today, right? Because you've taken all of this experience and now you are helping founders exit and then build beyond, right? Yeah. Invest in them, buy them. Can you talk about the company that you're with and how different, frankly, it is? And I think huge benefit to founders. This is an incredible option people need to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. So 
For about two years, I've been working with Andrew Wilkinson at Tiny. For those who don't know, Tiny is a holding company that was modeled on Berkshire Hathaway. It started with an agency called Metalab. You know, about 18 years ago, they launched. You know, about the time that we were launching our agency, so I always knew about Metalab, and uh, we kind of looked up to them as being like the premium, prestigious product design studio in the world. Off the back of you know the great success that Andrew had with Metalab, he started to build a holding company. It's now a company with, I think, 52 different companies, you know, sitting within Tiny's ecosystem. It's very much, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway model. So by, you know, very mature, kind of profitable, steady, um, mostly internet oriented as in like software, some of them are agencies, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a really interesting model and it's one which I wasn't really aware of at the time. And I think it's a good thing for uh, for sellers to be aware of that, you know, there are various buyer profiles out there. I think probably the main ones that people are aware of are, you know, the, the strategic acquirer. So, you know, like um, I sold to uh, a business that was bigger than ours that, you know, that wanted to absorb us um, for strategic reasons and, uh, you know, adapt our products and services into theirs. Um, people will also be aware of private equity. But I don't think a lot of people who are building businesses would think about um, holding companies as being a valid option. And I think they should consider that for mm -hmm. a number of key reasons. I would say that with the strategic acquire, the main risk, the main thing that can go wrong is probably cultural fit. I thought that it would be super easy to integrate my company into the buyers, but in reality, it was a pretty hard process. Our culture was totally different to theirs, and eventually ours was kind of killed off in the process of doing the deal. This wasn't just frustrating, but it was also like part of the reason why our earnout was hard to achieve because you know a lot of our core team left, as I mentioned, as a result of this you know cultural fit. With PE, one of the biggest risks is that the buyer simply doesn't care about the company they're acquiring. To them, it's just an asset. They'll be looking for an exit again, probably within four to seven years, and they're going to do whatever it takes to make this happen. As a founder, you're probably more likely to lose control of your business in this scenario. The firm may also lever you up with debt, meaning that your startup might end up losing a lot of growth capital on interest payments. Mm -hmm. And with the holding company model, I think incentives are uniquely aligned. Um, the holding company wants to own a business in the long term, you know, like ideally forever. When we buy business at Tiny, we say to them, like, our intention is to hold this forever. We're looking at the very, very, very long term. Um, if you look at Berkshire Hathaway, you have the, the perfect, you know, exhibit A of this model. Therefore, holding companies don't make short term decisions that other buyers make. They want to invest in the business. They also want to ensure that your company remains independent. So your culture is safe. You know, not to blow Tiny's horn, but I think this is an awesome option for those who are looking to sell. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of giving us this idea that there are, there's buyer profiles out there and they feel like they're really expanding. I mean, there are search yeah. funds, there are independent sponsors. Yeah. I think the holding company is maybe more similar to like a family office, but yeah. the holding, I would say it's like a family office combined with strategic in that they have a real interest in 
growing the business and using their expertise, right? The holding company, clearly tiny, has tons of expertise that comes out of each one of the portfolio companies yes. that they can leverage to grow the next business. Totally. And then on top of that, they want to hold for a long time, similar to yeah. maybe family offices think of these as kind of cash flows. We're going to hold this uh, for a while. The, what we want yeah. our investment dollars working that way. It's super interesting for entrepreneurs today of the options that are out there to yeah. create liquidity when you're ready. And I yeah. think so many of us think, hey, I, I just have to go out and raise more money. I have to get bigger and bigger and bigger before yeah. somebody's interested in buying me. This is a perfect example of, hey, maybe I need to look around and see what liquidity events could be you know, available to me today. Yeah. And then you maintain your culture and you keep growing, yeah. right? Um, it's a, it's a fantastic option. I need to learn frankly more about it myself. You know, I've, I've heard podcasts and I've read a little bit about it, but, uh, yes. I think after this, I'm going to uh, kind of dive in a little bit more yeah. because we want to give the most, the best options, uh, to all of, our, all of our, all of our clients. I, you're right. You know, like a lot of the companies that we acquire within Tiny are companies that we're kind of thinking about raising mm -hmm. and we can provide the capital for them to, you know, achieve whatever it is they need to achieve next, whether that's growing the team or growing the product or doing both. We have like, you know, almost limitless capital resources to do that. As you say, it's, it's an option where you kind of get the best of both worlds in that, you know, the founders can come in. Um, I would say, in, in half of the instances, the founders are kind of like I was pretty much done, you know, like they, they, they've served their 10 years, they've put all their blood, sweat and tears into it. And they're kind of burned out and they just want to step aside. That's totally fine for us. Like mm -hmm. we absolutely understand that. And so if founders want to step aside after the deal is done. That's totally fine. If they also want to stick around, that's absolutely fine. What we recognize is that the profile of the core team that is suitable for building a business from scratch up to, let's say, 10 million a year in revenue is one profile. The profile of building a business from 10 to 100 million is also totally different. Yeah. And then the profile of building 100 million to a billion and a billion plus, these are all totally different profiles. And one of the genius things that Andrew did with Tiny was recognizing that and just giving people the right path to get to the point where they say, okay, I'm done. Aligning incentives with everyone so that they can do that still see upside in the future, but step aside when the time comes. And uh, I think that's a really good thing for founders, you know, to have those options. Oliver, this has been really uh, enlightening. Thank you for sharing, you know, everything, the full journey, the exit, so much great advice, what you're doing today. I, I know we went a little bit over here, but I think this is so worth it. I really appreciate your time today. Any other, any parting words that you'd like to give? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, again, not to make this a, an, an episode about Tiny, but if anyone does want to find out more about the, the holding company option and what Tiny looks like, you can visit us at tiny.com. Um, there's a bunch of information there. You can also reach out to me if you want to learn about it. Yeah, that's all I would say. Um, I hope that what I've shared isn't off-putting in that, you know, obviously the, the exit that I had last time around was, you know, not optimal. It was suboptimal in a number of ways, but um, it was an incredible learning experience and I was still delighted to have gone through that exit. You know, financially, it was still an amazing thing. It allowed me to do what I'm doing today. So I hope that's not off-putting um, and I hope that it's communicated that there are tons of different options. You know, there's one, not one typical path that we all have to follow as founders who are looking to take our business to the next level. Oliver, this is perfect. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Not at all. Thank you, Todd. 
Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.